The Evolve Network is now live at evolvenetwork.tv. Subscribe for meal plans, recipes, cooking shows, and our very own The Magic Pill and The Magic Plant, as well as access to my favorite documentaries. The Evolve Network is also home to our full library of podcasts, with new release podcasts airing first and in full on the channel. You can also watch selected vodcasts in a video format. Enjoy this highlight of our podcast and head over to evolvenetwork.tv for the full Evolve podcast experience. The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co. established 1977 have personal and domestic water filters which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting alkaline ionized mineral water which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Dr. McCullough is a licensed osteopathic physician. He's also board certified in family medicine. He's on the advisory board of the Functional Medical University and also with the American Nutritional Association. His latest book is the Fat for Fuel cookbook, which he co-authored with myself, and he is the New York Times bestselling author for so many amazing books. For more information about Dr. McCullough, you can check out his website, mccullough.com, M-E-R-C-O-L-A dot com or check out his Facebook page at Dr. Joseph McCullough. Dr. McCullough, it is fantastic to have you onto our podcast today and thank you for the honour of uh, working with you on the Fat for Fuel cookbook and uh, supplying you with some delicious recipes. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I suspect you probably haven't gotten a copy of the book, but I did earlier this week. It will be actually formally released in two weeks or so. Uh, but I really wanted to express my deep appreciation, gratitude for all the wonderful work you did. And it really is outstanding. I've gotten a lot of good comments from it already. So it's a, it's a marvelous follow-up to my earlier book that I published this year, which is Fat for Fuel, which was catalyzed by a desire to create a resource, a foundational resource for people when they're struggling from cancer. And half of the people listening to this will be dying from and that's if, if they're not one of the ones it'll be someone they love that dies from cancer so we need a powerful strategy not only to, to help prevent cancer but heart disease and obesity and diabetes alzheimer's so th- these are the things that diet can change and uh, that's we outlined a strategy and fat for fuel and the cookbook to achieve uh, metabolic flexibility that will allow your body to properly burn fat 
as its primary fuel and radically reduce your risk for these diseases. You talk about cyclical ketogenic. So can you explain what that actually means? Sure. You know, a lot of people are in the paleo community are confused about this. There's a wide flavor of approaches to paleo, but most of them are essentially low carb and don't really necessarily focus on the protein content. But we focus on both because cancer cells will not only feed on glucose, it's not just low sugar that this useful diet, it's low protein, because in protein is composed, of course, amino acids, glutamine, which is available in almost all protein sources. And glutamine, it can actually serve as a substrate for cancer cells. So you got to limit both if you're, if you're treating cancer, and certainly if you want to prevent it and all these other chronic diseases. So the key, though, is that you only want to do that long enough for your body to regain its metabolic flexibility to burn your fuel either fat or carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. The average person in Australia, certainly the United States, has long lost the ability to burn as a fuel. They just can't. That's why two-thirds, I think it's 70% now of the people in the United States overall are overweight. 70%. Extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the biggest reasons is the processed foods and the, the macronutrient ratios. So when you follow a healthy diet and, and you're eating it, in a way that you regained your, you've retaught your body to uh, burn fat for fuel, uh, and that time can be as little as a day or a week in someone who's really healthy and fit and young and and uh, not imp metabolically impaired to as long as a few months or even longer for those who are metabolically impaired. And typically, those who are heavier overweight, that's going to be towards the longer side. Usually, the heavier you are, the longer it will take. So, but however long it takes, uh, and you'll know you're burning fat for fuel when you can measure ketone productions in, in your body. And that could be either ketones in your urine, ketones in your blood, or in your breath. Uh, the urine is the easiest and least expensive way. Uh, the most sensitive way is the blood, but it's also the most expensive. So once you, once you get uh, to that state, then a, this is where the confusion starts. Because a lot of people think, as I did, I fell into this trap. So if I fell into it, I think many other people will, and I want to warn people not to make the mistake I did. Thought, oh, this is such a healthy approach. It treats cancer. It's got to be the best for everyone. Well, it is initially, but it isn't long-term. And if you go into a low-carb diet long-term, a ketogenic diet long-term, you could definitely run into problems. Now, I know there's people who claim to have been on this for 10 years and, and, and with no problems, but it is not healthy. I want to warn people of this. You, it, once you can, are metabolically flexible, your body requires carbohydrates again you need carbs carbs are healthy i mean healthy carbs you know not not pastries and donuts but the, the healthy fruits and vegetables that we're all familiar with mm. so and, and the strategy is like it's intermittent or pulsed or cyclical or what i call targeted is even more precise because even though you can do it two or three times a week it's ideal if you target the times of extra carbohydrates so many of these 100 150 grams of carbs uh, along with extra protein, typically uh, 25, maybe 50% more protein than you would eat on a, on a non-high-carb day, then you're going to provide your body with an anabolic or muscle-building stimulus. And this works particularly well if you've got a trigger going on board like strength training. So if you can target that, then you'll get the benefit of both feeding your microbiome, your gut flora with these healthy carbohydrates that they require. If you go on a chronic low-carb diet, you're depriving your gut flora 
of the substrate they require to proliferate and stay healthy. So that's one of the reasons why you get really sick. You're in a starvation mode. We were never designed to do that. The, the strategy is to really replicate our ancestral practices, you know, basically what our ancestors did a few centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they typically had this feast and famine cycle where they would eat for a while, a few days. And, you know, there's no magic. It's not like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you have high carb and, you know, the other four days you don't. You got to figure it out for yourself. And, and it probably is beneficial to have a little variety in that. So maybe you go two or three days high carb and you go for a week or two weeks with, with low carb. So it really depends on your schedule, sensing what your body does. If you're going to do some quantitative assessment with measuring your glucose and ketones, that helps too. But it's ultimately everyone's an individual and they need to customize the specific strategy for themselves. So talking about individuals, are there any individuals that you wouldn't recommend this for? Well, there are probably a few. So those who have terminal illness are going to certainly need to have a, a consultation with their healthcare provider. Uh, and those who are seriously underweight, you've got to be particularly careful. So those are two broad categories. But for most people, the vast majority of people listening to it, it's, it's going to be a healthy strategy. Almost everyone listening to this can benefit from it. And what about children? Where do they fit into this? Because obviously uh, a lot of parents want to know what to feed their children, whether they're teenagers or in, in junior school or primary school. How does, how does uh, this work? I see. Remember, we talked about going into a strict ketogenic diet, right? Not cyclical, but strict ketogenic. And that would be for the the adults who are metabolically flexible. Mm -hmm. Almost all kids, unless they've been eating, you know, the processed food diet and are overweight, are metabolically flexible. So they don't have to do the the ketogenic period. They just go to cyclical ketogenesis, which I think is healthy for any most anyone who's who's already healthy. So that would include kids. You talk about intermittent fasting as well. You're one of the pioneers behind this movement. And uh, can you just give us a... Well, I'm not a pioneer. <laughs> well, <laughs> Maybe one of the early people to widely promote it, but I'm certainly not a pioneer. In it. Well, that's, what, that's what I mean. I, I heard th- about intermittent fasting through yourself. And you've grabbed the bull by the horns and you, you've, you definitely have promoted it to, to a wide variety of people. So uh, can you explain intermittent fasting in 25 words or less, please, doctor? <laughs> well, I don't want to be restricted to a word format, but it's a simple concept and Basically, you just don't for a certain time during the day and at a minimum of 12 hours. But I think anything less than 14 is probably not going to work. And what I've come to and apply personally is for 20 hours every day, I typically don't eat. Now, some days it might be as low as 16 or 18, but typically every day today I'm eating within a three hour window. So, you know, three or four hours is where I eat my food. And if it's outside the window, I don't eat food. The the real benefit is it is a tool that you can use. And if you do this for a month where you restrict your food to this 18 to 20 hour window, I mean, you're just your non eating window to, to that time frame. Mm-hmm. And you're only eating food for four or five hours a day. And you do that for a month, you will be very metabolically flexible. You have really ramped up and improved your body's ability to burn fat for fuel. And then you can engage in what I perceive is the most profoundly powerful metabolic intervention known to man. One that will radically improve your body's ability to remove all the damaged, impaired, or what we call senescent cells in your body. It's a process called autophagy. Mm-hmm. And most people who are not metabolically flexible and have what we call insulin resistance, this process is seriously impaired. So all the, it's essentially the garbage builds up in your body, Pete. Mm-hmm. And you lost the ability. It's like you didn't pay your bill. And the garbage collectors are not coming. 
Can you imagine the catastrophe would happen if that goes on for a long time? That's mm. exactly what the condition, and most people are insulin resistant. They can't get rid of this stuff. So the most profoundly powerful way to improve that is complete multi-day water fasting. It's not something you jump into. It's something you go into slowly. Ideally, you go into this process where you're eating cyclical ketogenesis and intermittent fasting for 20 hours a day. Do that for a month, and you can go into this. And there's a great book who really is a, a modern-day pioneer in this pro approach, Jason Fung, F-U-N-G. He's a uh, nephrologist out of the University of Toronto. We just had him on the podcast, actually. We have Mark. Good, good. I love Jason. He's written a book called The Complete Guide to Fasting, which goes into all the details. Mm. He's, he's got a new book. I don't know if you know he's got it coming out in January. It's called The uh, Diabetic Code. I'm interviewing him next week or two for that. Fantastic. So um, when you're talking about this, I guess, intermittent fasting, have they on this path for now a good six to seven years. And the further I go along it, the less I eat. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a strange way, but, but in these days, like you're talking about, I generally eat one to two meals per day, but, but they're good meals. They're full of vegetables. They've got good healthy fats in there. Yes, yes, of course. They've got a the small to moderate amount of animal protein and we, we'll have some broth or we'll have some fermented vegetables with them. But I, I don't get hungry anymore. Whereas when I started doing this many, many years ago and adopted a paleo approach, I was eating quite a few meals per day. I was, I, I was snacking as well but mm -hmm. as my i guess as i'm getting older and my body is getting more and more used to it i'm finding that one to two meals is plenty for me and i explain this mm -hmm. to the people that i work with sometimes because they ask you why aren't you eating i'm like because i'm not really hungry mm -hmm. and uh, my first meal of the day is generally early afternoon mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that, that means you're healthy. That's really the way we're designed to eat. And you know, the studies are really clear because I suspect you and most people listening to this are interested in improving their life, their health span, not, not only how long they're living, but the quality of those years when you age. So the best way to do that is to, I mean, one of the most effective strategies from many studies show this is you don't eat that many calories. And, but if you just adopt a low-calorie diet, the compliance for that is abysmal to it. It just doesn't work. This is not a calorie-restricted approach, but when you're eating like you're eating, like you just described, you just, the desire, the, the, the hunger that you have for these extra foods just disappears because your body has the ability to turn the switch and burn fats so that you have fuel all the time, which doesn't occur if you've lost your metabolic flexibility, which is why you have the cravings and why you're eating all the time. And, and, and one of the, the views that people have are, are fear around this issue. They just think they're going to be hungry. And, and when you do this, intermittent fasting for 20 hours for like a, a month, you can go through the entire four or five day fast with no, with no hunger, just absolutely no hunger. And not only does it improve your health and it actually, I neglected to mention, it increases your stem cell production with many people in the United States are paying $20,000 to get done. Uh, and it does it for free. Hmm. Uh, and you know, you know the values of stem cells. So this is what you get when you do these, these multiple water fasts. I like it so much. I do a five, a four to five day water fast every month now. Wow. And, and it's so easy to do. It's just, you know, like you, I eat one or two meals a day. So I'm really only skipping like, you know, four to six meals. That's it. It's, mm. it's not a hard thing. And, and you, there's a few little cautions that you have to do. And Jason discusses them in his book, but you know, like if you're taking magnesium as a supplement, you probably don't want to take magnesium when you're fasting because <laughs> you might have really loose stools and you have to take salt, a lot of salt when you're fasting. But other than that, it's just a magnificently powerful tool.
When I visited you many, many years ago in Chicago at your offices, I noticed one thing is that you also share, uh, you have a, an all-over tan. And it, it's interesting because in Australia, we seem to have created uh, a massive fear about being exposed to the sun, that if you go out in the sun, you've got to lather yourself with sunscreen. And I actually came out onto a, a Facebook chat a few years ago when I said, listen, I actually don't use sunscreen. If I do go out in the middle of the day and if I'm surfing, say, in Fiji for three hours, then I'll put on a, a non-toxic zinc just on my face. But generally, I don't put anything on because sure. a, a okay. lot of sunscreens have toxic chemicals. And, and I was in the media, they made fun of me and, and the head of the Cancer Council came out and said that what I'm talking about is dangerous and the head of the medical associations came out and said, don't listen to Pete Evans, He'll, he's trying to give you cancer, skin cancer. And, uh, it, was, it was pretty full on there for a while, but can you give me your advice about how to respect the sun and why it is so important for us? And talk about sunscreens uh, for a minute, if you don't mind, please, Doctor. Sure. I, I think your, your application and, and analogy of how you use it personally is like just picture perfect. I mean, I, I think there's virtually no reason for sunscreens unless you're in a situation like you described and you have to have something. You obviously can't. You could be wearing clothes when you surf, but it's not very convenient. Uh, so you want to put some on your face because your face you, you, is definitely prone to photo aging. And that's why when I, I walk the beach pretty much every day when I'm home for an hour to two hours and I don't wear sunscreen. And I, really, I haven't I haven't I don't think I've worn sunscreen this century. Truthfully, hmm. but I wear a cap, so you can you can be to keep the sun off my face because your face is really prone to photo aging and skin damage. So there's no reason to to have a sun blast in your face. You need it. That's unfortunately where most people get their own exposures on their face. But you need to be outside with no shirt on if you're a guy in, in a, a you know a sports bra if you're a woman and shorts. You know, because you want massive amounts of your skin exposed to the sun. And when you do that, you'll, the sun will go through your skin. And, you know, a common question is, well, how much time do I need to spend in the sun? Well, and that really depends. It depends on the, the time of year, the season, the latitude, the skin, the cloud cover, and most importantly, the, your skin color. So the darker pigment you are, the more you're going to need. So, uh, but ultimately you want to spend enough time to get your vitamin D levels into the therapeutic range, which in the United States is over 50 nanograms per milliliter, but I believe Australia uses a different um, units and it's probably, you have to, I think it's millimoles per deciliter. Mm -hmm. I think you have to multiply by 2.5. So it would be like 125 uh, would be a healthy level. Anything above that would be fine and you probably can go 25, 50% even higher and that could be therapeutic. So that's the answer is how much and how do you know if you've gotten, it's like anything. When, you, when you're, you're chefs, so you get this. When, you, when you're cooking, you know, you, you just don't give the, all the energy to the food like in 10 seconds, right? Otherwise, yes. you, you burn it. Mm -hmm. So you have to dose it slowly. <laughs> so it's slowly enough so it doesn't cause a problem. So if you get this intense amount of sun, I mean, you get in the right dose, but you get it in a minute or two, you could have a problem. So you just And the way your body lets you know that is that your skin doesn't get red. Now, obviously, if you're deeply pigmented, you're not going to see that. You're probably not going to sunburn anyway. But if you have the lightest tone of it, especially if you're fair complexion, you have a light pink to the, from the sun exposure, then that's probably the time that's, it's, uh, that you need to stop exposing your skin to sun. And that most is easily done by either going indoors or putting on skin, uh, some clothing over your skin. Yeah. I would not use sun tan lotion. You know, that's the general principle that really is the, the most. I have not swallowed vitamin D most of this century, well over 10 years ago. And my vitamin D levels are 70 nanograms per milliliter without swallowing any. And that's because what it's supposed to be. You know, I mean, you're just not designed to get it. 
through swallowing a pill. Now, some people don't have a choice. And if you don't, if you're one of those people and just you're indoors all the time and just don't have the opportunity, then I would probably swallow the pill. And I, if I had, if that was my circumstances, but ideally you want to structure your life so that you, you can get outside and get the sun because there's other benefits. You know, people, most people, including health professionals, don't understand that vitamin D may just be a marker for sun exposure. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has many therapeutic benefits, and most dentists knows about those, preventing cancer being the primary one. But it also is a marker for exposure to the sun, and the sun has many other beneficial wavelengths, like infrared, near-infrared, and red. And those have very powerful metabolic benefits, especially improving mitochondrial function, where they can improve, uh, well, they upregulate this specific enzyme, not enzyme, but a protein in the electron transport chain called cytochrome C oxidase, which facilitates the improvement of the ability to produce ATP, the energy currency of your cells. So there's a lot of things that we don't know about this. So that, you know, but if you can moderate your exposure so that you get into the therapeutic level of vitamin D, then you're probably getting all the benefits which is what you need. We were designed to be in the sun. And, you know, it just shocks me to hear your experience in Australia, which, you know, leads me to conclude that Australia probably is 10 to 20 years behind the U.S. with this, with respect to its appreciation of some of the advances we're making in natural medicine here. Because, I mean, that is just, I mean, I, I, I that just doesn't occur, that behavior. I mean, they, they tolerate us now. I mean, it's the dermatologists who are pushing this and this agenda with staying out of the sun. But, uh, you know, it's it's just shocking. They they're they're slowly turning, and that's that's a good thing. You know, we were we're making some penetration and headway into this area. So you talked about mitochondria just before. Could you explain what that actually is for the people that don't understand or haven't heard of the term before? Yeah, well, most most people have if they've taken any type of biology course. And my, my mitochondria are typically called the powerhouses of the cell. These these little cellular structures that are inside nearly every cell of your body. Your red blood cells, mature red blood cells don't have them in superficial skin cells. But they uh, are responsible for your body's energy. And they outnumber you like significantly. There's, a, I think, it's about a million mitochondria, maybe not a million, hundreds of thousands of mitochondria every cell in your body. Mm-hmm. They outnumber your cells. So some cells have as, a few, as a few as a few hundred, where others can have up to 100,000, specifically um, in the reproductive organs. So our tissue. So they, uh, you want to keep those healthy, and that's really one of the primary purposes of the fat for fuel approach is, is to so that you're nourishing your mitochondria. Because all these diseases, you know, Thomas Seafried, I don't know if you've interviewed him yet, but he's the pioneer biologist out of, the universe, uh, out of Boston College, who has wrote the book, the Metabolic Theory, Mitochondrial Metabolic Theory of Cancer. And you can actually look up his name uh, and that title. And he, the book he wrote is, is a textbook. It's, it's like $100, $200. But you, he actually summarized it in a brilliant paper that you can get downloaded for free. It's a PDF. And, you know, it has a lot of details and really explains in great biochemical detail the importance of the mitochondria function and how it all works. But it's a brilliant system. And, and really, the, 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 if you can optimize mitochondrial health, then essentially you're just going to get healthy. It's the core basis of almost all disease. And I talked about insulin resistance earlier being a big problem, but insulin resistance is what causes mitochondrial dysfunction. So your insulin, when you, when you have too much insulin, it's going to downregulate your mitochondria and cause them not to reproduce and become senescent or age or much older much quicker than they should. Which brings us to the next interesting topic because uh, we're going to talk about EMFs because 
from my understanding, is something that affects our mitochondria as well. Mm-hmm. And I was actually having a, a meeting yesterday with a, with a journalist here in Australia who did a story on one of our national television networks and talked about potentially the damaging effects from mobile phones. She was, this journalist was actually, um, there was a witch hunt afterwards and she's lost her job because she said that, or reported the fact that possibly the telephones are not that healthy for us and there needs to be more research done and they've got a warning label inside every telephone apparently that that states this and uh, they just reported this and it became a a huge story here in Australia and it still is and uh, a massive witch hunt is happening for this for this journalist so if we talk about mitochondria how do EMFs and and especially mobile phones and Wi-Fi how does that affect us and is it dangerous Oh, there's no question it's dangerous. But it's also dangerous for journalists to try to expose it. And, you know, it seems pretty obvious that Australia is significantly behind the U.S. with respect to the adoption of some of these thoughts. Now, it's still criticized in the U.S., but not so much in Australia. So I would caution people out there not to really expose this too much and lay low because they're going to get they're going to get killed. And so let's go to the foundational reason. Why was this witch hunt after this journalist? Right. What, what, what caused that? There's a darn good reason for it, and hardly anyone understands this. What they do understand is that Big Pharma is massively involved with uh, promoting their agenda and suppressing food choices and supplements as an alternative to their drugs, right? I mean, that's understood in the United States. They, they, there's this massive influence, this lobbying component where the, they influence the federal regulatory agencies, and uh, they have control over the media and the peer-reviewed science, the, you know, the editors and the people on science committees or, or the uh, criteria that make recommendations, are they're all kind of, not all of them, but the vast majority of them are controlled by the farm industry. Well, mm-hmm. that is a bad situation, but multiply that times five or ten on the telecommunications. They dwarf pharma. They dwarf pharma. And if you think that, far, that pharma, you believe that, just it, it is massively worse with telecommunications. And it's, it's very similar you know, so so there's going to be this, you know, if one study comes up that's supporting the truth, that is an actually truthful study, telecommunications will fund 10 or 20 other studies to tell the exact opposite. And they will they will absolutely discredit the scientist who's published study or the journalist uh, and, and put massive amounts of attention on it and speak to suppress the truth. And this is going to happen for the next 10, 15 years or so. I think we're going to be leading the way in the U.S. in the next few uh, that's why I'm writing my next book about EMF. But to answer your initial questions, yes, EMFs t- target not just mitochondria, because I mentioned some cells don't have mitochondria. They hurt every cell in your body for the most part, essentially every cell. And how do they do it? Well, before I tell you how, let me share that I've known about the dangers of EMF for at least two, probably two to three decades, for a long time, at least two, okay? Just to be conservative, two decades. Mm-hmm. And I knew that they caused their damage to what's called non-thermal effects. In other words, they don't heat the tissue in your body. The, now, there, there's three different types of EMFs, three primary different types. One is electric fields, the other is magnetic fields, and the third are radio frequency fields, or for the most part, microwaves. And mm-hmm. we talk about microwaves, yes, this is the microwave in your oven. It's the same frequency. It's a, typically a few gigahertz. And... They, they all cause damage the same way. And interestingly, 
just to give you before we go into that mechanism, how? I got a great question for you. If we were to go back a hundred years, okay, nineteen seventeen, it just I don't know like when it was around World War One. I, I I don't know when World War One did it was around that time. So right around World War One. And you were to have a, a good measuring device like we have now, and you were to measure the amount of microwave radiation. That set, let's just say we have to give a frequency. Let's do one gigahertz. You know, most yeah. phones operate about two gigahertz or so, somewhere in that range. Mm-hmm. And you were to measure the amount of one gigahertz radiation, 1917, and then go today and measure it outside. How much of an increase do you think there's been in 100 years? I really hope you enjoyed the first half of this podcast. If you'd like to listen to the rest, please visit evolvenetwork.tv. That's evolvenetwork.tv. We'll see you there. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical, or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.